Chapter Five of Lisbeth Longfrock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lisbeth Longfrock by Hans Unwood. Translated by Laura E. Paulson. Chapter Five Summer Taking the Animals Up to the Sater. Upward over the open slope across the valley from Hurl Farm, a lengthy procession was taking its way. Kirsty Hurl stood at the window of her room, following the procession with her eyes as long as she could, for soon it would vanish from the open slope into the wooded part of the mountain. The herds belonging to Hurl Farm were that day being taken up to the Sater to spend the summer grazing on the rich grass which grows in sunny places here and there on the mountain heights. At the head of the procession rode the milkmaid on the military horse, which for this occasion had a woman's saddle upon its back. The saddle had a high frame, so that it looked almost like an easy chair, and the milkmaid sitting aloft on it, dressed in her best, and with a white linen kerchief on her head, was rosy, plump, and also somewhat self-conscious, for was she not the most important person in the company, the one who was to give all the commands? After her came two farm hands, each leading a horse whose back fairly curved in under its heavy load. Then followed the herds in order of rank. First came the bell-cow, then Brindle, with her wounded horn that had grown on awry. Then Crookhorn, then Darky, and behind Darky the whole long train of cows, all except two, Old Molly and the pet, Wee Bonnie, who were to stay at home to furnish milk for the people there, and to teach the new calves to follow. After the cow stalked the big bull, as if acting as rearguard for his herd. Next came the goats, hurrying along and trying to get ahead then the sheep in a tight clump, and behind these four great pigs and a few calves, while at the very end of the train came the under-milkmaid, and Lisbeth Longfrock with her lunch-bag on her back. In the beginning all had gone as gaily as a dance, for almost every one had pleasant memories of the summer before, and it seemed impossible to reach the mountain-top quickly enough. But as they mounted, the way became steeper and steeper, and the sun rose higher and higher, burning their backs. The pigs began to lag behind, trying to branch off at every side path, so as to get a little nap in the shade, or cool off in a mud hole. The sheep and goats, feeling the need of something in their stomachs, slipped aside whenever they spied a young birch tree whose leaves they could nibble, or a fence to peep through or a plot of green grass. The last year's calves, who had not been to the sater before, saw no reason at all for hurrying, and made no attempt at it except when the stick was used upon them. So Lisbeth Longfrock had to keep rushing off the roads into side-paths, behind bushes, into forest thickets and boggy marshes, to drag the various creatures back into line and scarcely did she get them safely on to the road from one side before they slipped out again on the other. She had to take off one of her long knitted garters and tie it round her waist so that she could tuck her long frock up out of the way, for she was constantly on the run, coaxing, shouting and circumventing. 
It was a hard struggle. Her light hair became dripping wet, and her face was as red as a half-ripe mountain cranberry. But Lisbeth did not notice her discomfort. So absorbed was she in what she had to do. The under-milkmaid would return to the farm with the men when the satyr was reached. It was Lisbeth who was to have the responsibility for the smaller animals during the whole summer, and who was to bring them home in the autumn fat and glossy. She and the head milkmaid had their special responsibilities, each at her own end of the line, as it were, and even if Lisbeth's was only the tail end, she did not wish to have the disgrace of being unable to keep it in order. The procession continued mounting higher and higher, and soon the whole valley lay below, deep and wide and delicately green. The fir trees became smaller and more scattered, the slender birches grew closer together. Before long the first specimens of black crowberries and old woman's switches, dwarf birch trees, were seen, and with that the procession was up over the crest of the mountainside. Then all at once it seemed as if a heavy weight slipped off, as if all the weariness was smoothed away from man and beast. The whole mountain sent its freshness and peace streaming over them. They were in a new world. Before them, with its boundless surface broken into level spaces and undulating slopes, lay the mountain top, stretching itself far, far away until lost in the deepening blue of a snow-streaked summit. If they looked back, the valley seemed to have sunk out of sight but on the mountain-top across the valley they could see wide expanses of open land, dotted with shining water and grassy sater districts. Drawing a long breath, all gazed silently around. What a tranquillity lay over everything! Of their own accord the animals fell into order along the stony road, curving endlessly beyond them. They made no more attempts to branch off into side-paths, but walked slowly along at an even pace, that gave Lisbeth a little time to view her surroundings. She had never seen a place so broad and open, and up here she was to spend the whole bright summer. All at once, in the midst of all this vastness and space, Lisbeth felt herself so wonderfully little. But she was not at all terrified. She only felt very solemn and peaceful. She began to think of the future, of the rest of the day, the coming of summer, and the many summers that would follow. Sometimes she herself would be big and grown up, like the head milkmaid, whom she could now see sitting on the high saddle far ahead. Sometimes she herself would sit up there, perhaps, and ride at the front. The pack-horses refused to go slowly now, even under their heavy loads. They forged ahead past the mounted milkmaid, and soon disappeared over a distant ridge. The procession followed slowly. Hour after hour it wound its curving way over ridges and brooks, past satyrs and shining mountain lakes. Lisbeth had the honour of sitting up in the saddle and riding a while, the milkmaid feeling she would gladly walk a little. Evening began to draw nigh. They took their way high up through a gap in the mountain which they had seen in the distance early in the morning. After that the road began to descend. They met with birch-trees again, and one single warp-fir-tree, and from below they heard the rushing sound of a large river. 
they reached at last the edge of the sater valley to which they were bound and stood still to look down below them lay a comparatively level space peaceful and green with its three sater huts belonging to Hergset, lunde and hurl farms from the chimneys of two of the huts smoke was ascending in the still afternoon air the gazers were filled with delight this then was the spot where they were to spend the summer the cows began to bellow the smaller animals one and all started on a run past the cows and down the hill early next morning lisbeth was on her way across the mountain pasture with the small animals in her charge she did not have the lunch bag on her back now for while she was up at the sater she was to take dinner at the hut every noon the sunshine was brilliant the cows had been turned loose and were walking away on the nearest cow path going in single file as if strung on a line the leader's bell rang deeply and regularly its tone mingling with others quite as deep from the neighbouring satyrs and in upon this solemn ringing broke the delicate brisk dingle-dangle of the smaller creatures bells the time had come now when lisbeth longfrock was to make her first entrance into the vast unknown the milkmaid had told her that while tending her animals this first day she should not wander too far, lest she might not be able to find her way back. She was to listen to the other herders and keep near them. The milkmaid did not know whether the other herders were boys or girls this year. Lisbeth kept looking back every now and then to keep track of the way she had come, and was apparently loath to lose sight of the hut but the animals drifted rapidly off in the distance and she had to follow so as not to lose sight of them altogether and after a while when she looked back the hut could not be seen around her were only the unending wastes of hill and marsh and the far-away mountain peaks how spacious and silent it was not a sound was to be heard except that of the bells not even the river's rushing harmonies reached up to where she stood she suddenly felt herself so utterly alone and remote, and had such a longing to caress some living creature, that she went about the flock and petted now this one and now that. The bell-goat became so envious that it butted the others out of the way and stood rubbing itself against her. All at once there came a call. Ho-hi-ho! Ho-hi-ho! So loud and clear that the mountains echoed with it. The goats picked up their ears, and Lisbeth, too, listened breathlessly. The call was so unexpected that she had not distinguished from what corner it came. It sounded near, and yet, because of all the echoes, from all directions. Ho-hi-ho! Ho-hi-ho! This time the call was still louder. Presently she heard bells, several bells, and then she saw a large flock of sheep and goats come straggling over the crest of a hill. Very likely it was the other herders who were calling. Lisbeth saw two straw hats rise above the hill, and by degrees two tall boys seemed to grow out of the hilltop, boys about as big as Jacob. At the sight of them Lisbeth felt so shy she knelt down and hid herself behind a bushy mound. The boys shaded their eyes with their hands and looked down from the hilltop. Ho-i-ho! they called, and then listened. Ho-i-ho! No answer. All was still. 
Then one of the boys cried out, Oho, you boy from hell, don't you hear? If you have pluck, we call you to appear. They stood a while watching. Then they darted forward, turned two or three somersaults, and ran down the hill toward her, repeating their call and shouting. Again they stopped and listened, as if uncertain. Hi ho! If you lie hid beside some bush or stone, come out and show there's marrow in your bone. Then the two boys came to the bottom of the hill where Lisbeth's flock was, and looked around. No, they did not see anyone. The new herder from Hurl, who dared to lose track of his flock the first day, must be a reckless young scamp, a fellow it might be fun to get acquainted with. Very likely he had heard of their bathing place in the sloping marsh. Probably that was where he had gone now. Well, they would take his animals with and go there themselves. But first they would give another call. Perhaps he was not so far away that he might hear if they gave a good, loud one. Hi-ho! From far away, Echo repeated the sounds in dwarf language, as the Norwegian boys call it. Hi-ho! When it was still again, there sounded close as hand, and thin as clear as the peep of a bird. Hi-ho! That was from Lisbeth who, when she heard that they were going to take her flock away, felt that she ought to call out, though it was extremely embarrassing. The boys stopped short, greatly astonished. From behind the bushy little mound there rose something small, just like a tiny hill-woman, in a plaid neckchief and a long frock, who stood stock-still and looked at them with large, shy eyes. At the sight of her the boys were somewhat abashed. It was a little embarrassing for them to find that their boastful, taunting rhymes had been directed against a poor, timorous young one, and a girl at that. But it was exasperating, too, for they had expected to see a comrade of their own size. Hm! Any one could see that Hurl Farm had womanfolk at the head of it. The mistress was not willing that even the herder should be a boy. If the young one had only been bigger, bigger than themselves, they could have shown their contempt for her, and chased her. But that little midget, no indeed, grown-up fellows like them did not waste either words or blows on such small fry. It would be a good plan, however, to talk with her a bit, and see whether another herder was not coming to take her place. After that they would have nothing more to do with her. They could get along by themselves for one summer. All that was necessary was to frighten her a little, so she would keep out of their way. They came over to Lisbeth and stood before her, big boy-like, with their hands in their pockets. Then one of them said, Are you going to be the hurl herder this summer? Yes, answered Lisbeth. Then, as if to excuse herself, she added, Kirsty wanted me to. What is your name? Lisbeth, and Jacob calls me Longfrock. Where are you from? From Peerout. Are you Jacob Peerout, sister? We went to school with him last winter. Yes, I am. What a nuisance that Jacob himself did not come. We haven't any use at all for young ones like you up here. The speaker, who was the larger of the two boys, stood a while waiting for a reply, but Lisbeth did not know what answer to make to his remark, and therefore said nothing. So he continued, Well, we only wanted to say to you, 
I'm Morlay Hoxet, and that fellow over there is Peter Lunde, that you must keep out of our way. You must not dare to come a step beyond the line running from Pancake Stone down around the sloping marsh to the pointing stump near the Hoxeth cow park. If you let your animals graze beyond that line, your brother Jacob next winter shall get all the thrashings you ought to have had this summer. Lisbeth was dreadfully frightened, and her mouth began to tremble. Then the second boy said to the larger one, Yes, but Jacob is so strong he will get the best of you. Not when I have brought myself into good training. Hoy! And he turned a handspring. Now you know what Jacob may expect, so take care what you do. We boys are going up to the sloping marsh to bathe. Hoy ho! With a shout and call they took their way up over the hill again. At the top they looked back, and then glanced a little dubiously at each other. Lisbeth Longfrock was still standing where they had left her, and she was crying. Lisbeth felt very small and forlorn as she stood there. She certainly did not want to do anything that Jacob would get a thrashing for. If only she knew where it was that she was not allowed to go. But she had not the least idea where either the pointing stump or the sloping marsh lay. All that she could do would be to keep with her animals and find out about these places later. Some time afterwards, when Lisbeth had mounted a small round hill, she heard the bells of the boys' flocks again. It gave her a fright, and she began to chase her animals off in another direction. But as she turned round to do so, she saw, far, far down the marsh, two white figures running, jumping, and playing leapfrog in the sunshine beside a gleaming pond. The boys had let their flocks stray away from them. Lisbeth dreaded incurring more displeasure, but surely something ought to be done. There was no help for it. She would really have to take care of the stray animals for a while. The boys could not be angry at that, she knew, because the greatest disgrace that can befall a herder is the losing of his flock. And for boys so big as these, to go back to the sater without any animals would be especially humiliating. So Lisbeth went to work, gathering the flocks together, jumping up on a mound every now and then to see if the boys were not ready to come, but they appeared to have forgotten everything except their play. At length she saw that the boys suddenly stood still and listened, peering about in all directions. Then they started into activity again, snatched up their clothes, put them on in great haste, and started off on a run toward the opposite end of the marsh. Every little while they would stop and listen, and then run on again. They were so far off that there was no use in Lisbeth shouting to them, or trying to give the call, Ho, hi, ho! When the boys reached the round hill that lay on the other side of the marsh, they ran to the top, and again peered in all directions for a long time. Then, fast as their leg could carry them, they made their way back across the marsh, straight toward the small round hill where Lisbeth was. As they neared it, Lisbeth thought that now was the time to give the herders call, for the flocks were on the other side of the hill and their bells could not be heard by the boys. Her first call was too weak. She gave another somewhat stronger. The boys stopped and answered. The girl called again. Oh, hi-ho! And then the boys came up the hill. They found it a little difficult to break the silence. 
It was rather annoying to be obliged to question that young one about their flocks, but there was no other way. "'Have you seen our animals?' Lisbeth looked at them pleadingly. "'They are here at the foot of the hill. I have been taking care of them, but you must not thrash Jacob for it.' The boys looked as they felt, rather crestfallen. But they had to say something, so Ole remarked as they turned and left her, Oh, well, we'll let him off for this one time. When Lisbeth went to fasten the gate of the fold that evening, Peter Lunde came bobbing along outside the fence. You haven't seen a strange sheep here, have you? No, I've counted mine. Well, perhaps I counted mine wrong. Very likely they are all there. The two stood looking at each other for a while. They both grew shy and had to turn their eyes away. At last Peter said, "'Lisbeth, if you want to, you may tend your flock wherever we tend ours, and you may come to our pond. I understood Orlo to say that he is willing too, but if he makes any fuss about it, why, I can thrash him if I really want to. Yes, I will gladly come, you may be sure. Well, then, I will come after you tomorrow morning, back at the hill here.' Lisbeth did not get a chance to say anything more, for Peter was off like a flash round the corner. He had seen Orla coming. Orla came, lounging along in his usual fashion, with his hands in his pocket. You haven't seen a strange sheep, have you? No. Humph. Is one of yours missing? I don't know exactly. Humph. I thought I would tell you that you need not bother yourself about what I said today. I did not mean anything by it. It was Peter that made me say it. And if you want me to, I can thrash him for it tomorrow. End of chapter five.